Would you go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 115, Psalm 115. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give you a bit of context, okay? I'm going to give you a lot of context. Uh, So first of all, you should know as you turn to Psalm 115 that Psalm 115 scholars categorize as a hymn. Some will say it's a hymn of adoration. Others will say it's a communal hymn. But they agree that Psalm 115 is a hymn. Now, Psalm 115 is in book 5 of the Psalter. So if you've gotten to Psalm 115, go ahead and turn a couple pages forward in your Bible to hymn 107, to Psalm 107. And you'll see right at the beginning of Psalm 107, it says book 5. You see, there are five books in the Psalter. And Psalm 107 begins book five in the Psalter. And Psalm 107 is a thanksgiving psalm. And it's a repetitive thanksgiving psalm. There's a refrain that gets repeated again and again. And it's talking about how the Lord has delivered his people from their distress again and again and again. And then you get to Psalm 108 and 110 through 110, and this is a Davidic collection. These are Psalms of David. And of course, you remember Psalm 110 is that messianic psalm, that kingship psalm, that Jesus says, when David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, right, sit at my right hand until I put all of your enemies under my feet. Jesus says in Matthew 22 that that psalm is referring to him. And then we have 111 through 118. And this is one big collection. We'll come back to that. But at the end of 118, what comes after 118? That's right. It's not, not right. It's 119, right? And you remember 119 is the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter actually in the entire Bible. It's a massive Torah acrostic. So it's 176 verses. And it's organized around the different, the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have a grouping of verses that are about Aleph, and then Bet, and then Gimel, Dalet, so all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. You know what the subject is of this massive uh, poem here? It's the Torah. It's the Torah. Now, in English, the word Torah is translated law. And so you see Psalm 119 talking about the law. The psalmist is saying, how I love your law, how I love your your law. And and, and we think that maybe he's talking about rules here, right? And maybe this guy's a lawyer or he's a legalist, right? He really wants to follow the rules. But you need to understand that in Hebrew, Torah, the word that's translated law, uh, is the first five books of the Bible, So the Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when the psalmist is saying, I love your law, what he's saying is, I love your word. You see, the psalmist at that point only had the Torah as God's written word. And so he's saying, I delight in your word. I love your word. I'm going to build my whole life on your word because the word is central in the Christian life. And then you get to Psalms 111 to 118, okay? And these psalms are interconnected. And they all have this one Hebrew word, okay, six of the eight, have one Hebrew word in it that you all know. Did you all know that you know Hebrew? It's the word hallelujah. 
Look at Psalm 111, verse 1. How does it start? Praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's hallelujah. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise the Lord. So there's this collection of hymns that are bound together with interlocking themes, and they're all oriented around praise the Lord. Now, there's a subset of those psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. This is called the Egyptian Hallelujah Psalms, okay? And these psalms are all oriented around God delivering his people out of Egypt right through the Exodus. And you remember through the 10 plagues, uh, then Israel celebrates the Passover uh, and the, the blood of the lamb passes over everyone who puts the blood on their doors, right? And God delivers his people. And so scholars say that Psalms 113 to 118 would have been read as Israel celebrated the Passover generation after generation after generation. Psalm 113 and 114 would have been read before the Passover meal or recited or sung. And Psalm 115, 116, 117, and 118 would have been sung or recited after the Passover meal. Now I want you to take that piece and just stick it in the back of your brain, okay? Psalm 113 through 118 would have been sung at the Passover meal. We're going to come back to that. So when we look at Psalm 115 this morning, we're going to look at it under three headings. One, we're going to look at the impotence of idols. And we're going to see this in verses 4 through 8 and 17. And then we're going to see the omnipotence of God. And we're going to see this in verses 2 and 3 and 12 through 16. And then we're going to look at trust and praise. And we're going to see trust and praise in verses 1, verses 9 through 11, and verse 18. So the impotence of idols, the omnipotence of God, and then trust and praise. Let's look at God's word together. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. 
May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And all God's people said, hallelujah, right? It's right there at the end. Praise the Lord. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. We'll begin this morning with the impotence of our idols. And if you look at verse 2, the psalmist is referring to a taunt, a taunt that comes from the nations, that is, those who are surrounding the people of God. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Where is your God? Now, you need to understand, in, in the ancient Near East, in the world and times of Israel, everyone had a God that you could see. You see, if you had a God in the ancient Near East, it was an image, right? They didn't have a category for a God that you couldn't see. They didn't have a category for an invisible God. And so the nations taunt Israel. We can see our gods. Where is your God? Where is your God? And isn't that a taunt that sometimes comes to our hearts in the quiet places when we're walking in the darkness and we've cried out again and again, God, where are you? And the taunt comes to our hearts just like the nations would say, where is your God? And in those moments, our hearts are tempted and often run to idols, right? They often run to idols. John Calvin calls our hearts idol factories, that we're constantly producing idols. We're seeking something to worship. We're seeking something to believe in. We're seeking something to trust, right? And idols are gods that you can see. But just because you can see them doesn't mean that you should trust them. Because you can see the gods of the nations, right, these idols, but they're powerless. Look at verse 4. Their gods are silver and gold, the work of human hands, right? They have mouths, verse 5, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. You see, the psalmist is showing you the utter impotence of idols. They're made in the image of man, right? They have mouths and they have eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet and throats, but they can't speak and they can't see and they can't hear and they can't smell and they can't feel and they can't walk and they can make no sound in their throats. And the psalmist is saying, do you see how impotent your idols are? But we get so wrapped up in worshiping our idols that we can forget that they're completely powerless, right? If you, if you made them, if you made that little statue and you're going to worship that little statue, right? 
isn't it kind of obvious? Like, yeah, that doesn't have a whole lot of power. I just put it out, you know, brought it out of the kiln. I just finished carving it. It's not going to have power, right? But sometimes we get so wrapped up that we forget that our idols are completely impotent. But let's face it, we, we don't have statues sitting around our house, right? Statues that are people-like statues that we, that we worship, that we pray to. Does anybody have statues in, in their house Yeah, that they pray to? <clears throat> it's a little creepy. Uh, my family back home actually has a little statue of me. We don't pray to it, so it's okay. Um, but you know, most of us don't pray to statues, right? Our, our idols are much more sophisticated than that. Do you know the idols of your heart? What is idolatry? Do you know we have idolatry right here in Jackson? If you go out this morning onto Northside Drive and turn left and go down under the underpass of 55, you'll see it. It's right there on the left. It's a store where everything costs a dollar. It's idolatry. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> I idolatry <clears throat> is whenever we look to something other than God for meaning, identity, value and worth. Let me say that again. Idolatry is whenever we look to something other than God for meaning, identity, value, and worth. You see, we're always looking to something for meaning, identity, value, and worth. What, what is it that your heart is looking to? What is it that makes you okay? What is it that says, I know that I count, I know that I'm somebody because I have this? Now, idols can be good things, right? But we turn them into ultimate things. So, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you three different examples of idols. Romantic love, work, or success in work specifically, and family. So, God made us for relationships. We're designed to be in relationships. Getting married is a good thing. Some people are called to singleness, but getting married generally is a good thing. But when you get embittered because... No one has ever asked you out. When you get embittered because that particular person won't ask you out. Or if you need always to be in a relationship in order to be okay. And so you get into bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship. Maybe romantic love, a good thing, has become ultimate. Maybe you're looking to romantic love for your meaning, identity, value, and worth. You've begun to worship and it's become an idol. Or... At success, right? God made work. Work was around before the fall. Yes, it was. <clears throat> work was around before the fall. And so we're designed, we're built for work, and we're built to succeed in our work, right? But if success to your work is so important to you that you can no longer set work aside in order to spend time with your family. Or if you get overlooked for that promotion and you're in such despair that you can't get out of bed for a week, maybe success 
has become something ultimate. Maybe you're looking to success for your meaning, identity, value, and worth. It's become an idol, and you're worshiping. Or maybe it's family. Families are good. We're designed to love our family. God gives us families, right? But, But when your child's disobedience just drives you uncontrollably mad again and again, not that you've ever been, again and again and again, or if your child's failure brings you to that ultimate sense of despair, maybe your family has become ultimate. Right? Maybe you're looking to your family for your meaning, identity, value, and worth. It's become an idol, and you're worshiping. And by the way, typically, romantic love, 20s, right? <clears throat> Success, 30s. Family, 40s. When I get to the 50s, I'll tell you what we find over there. Um, <clears throat> that's gen- generally a pattern in life. But may- maybe for you, it's more specific. Maybe for you it's more specific. Maybe it's if I could just be friends with Fred or if I could just get that new gadget, right? Or if I could just get the recognition that I know that I really deserve. And you take good things, right? Friendship with Fred is a good thing or or that new gadget, that's great. It's really helpful or recognition. It's something that we all want. But we take that good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And when we do that, we're worshiping. Right? And it's become an idol. So, so you want to be friends with Fred. Okay, that's great. But if you're smearing Bob in order to get on the inside with Fred, maybe it's become an idol. Right? Or, or getting that new gadget. That, that's great. You want that new gadget? But if it's the first thing you're thinking about when you wake up in the morning, and it's the last thing you think about before you go to bed, it may be an idol. Or... Uh, recognition, right? Recognition is a good thing. You want recognition? That's great. But if you demand recognition and you're willing to hurt others so that you can get recognition, maybe it's an idol. Do you know the idols of your heart? There are so many idols in our hearts. I I mean, we, we have an approval, control, image, power, right? There are all of these idols. And, and here's the thing. There's never just one idol in your heart. You have many idols in your heart. And they're all wrestling for control. Do you remember the game King of the Hill? Growing up, this is like back in the Stone Ages before you could play on your Xbox, your iDevice, right? This is a game of machoism, usually played amongst elementary school boys. Get that testosterone rush. and You know the way the game goes, right? Boy one is on the top of the hill. He, he's, he's a king, right? And then boy two rushes boy one and knocks boy one off. And then while boy one and boy two are down there tumbling, boy three goes, oh, I'm going to climb up here. And he takes, he takes the king of the hill spot. And then boy four rushes him. Meanwhile, one and two come. And they're constantly wrestling, right, for who's going to be the king of the hill. And that's what's happening in your heart. Idol one is on the throne, and then idol two topples it, and idol three rushes in, and then there's idol four, and hopefully at some point, the king of glory is the king of your life, because whatever is on the throne in your life in that moment is going to shape and influence what you think and what you do and what you feel. 
Do you know the idols of your heart? It's important. It's worth thinking about. Now, look at what happens when we worship our idols. It's there in verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Here's a fundamental fact of being made in the image of God. God designed us so that we become like what we worship. Let me say that again. God designed us so that we become like what we worship. What does that mean? Worship has transformative power. Worship transforms us. So how do we become more and more like Jesus? Well, we worship him, right? We, we contemplate him. We talk to him. We read about him. We spend time with him. We get to know him better. We learn to trust in him. But if learning to trust in Christ, right, if worshiping Christ transforms us more and more into the image of Christ then what does worshiping idols do? It's going to transform you more and more into the image of your idols. You're going to become like your idols. You see, you're always becoming. The question is whether you're becoming more like Christ or you're becoming more like your idols. So what does it look like to become more like your idols? Well, let's say that you really want the new iPhone. Is there another phone coming out after the 10 here? Let's say, you know, you don't have a 10. You really want a 10. And it's the first thing you think about when you wake up, and it's the last thing that you think about when you go to bed. What does it look like for, that, for you to become like that phone, right? Well, just take your daily life and pull yourself out of it and insert your phone in there. Right? So how does that phone relate to your spouse? How does that phone relate to your kids? How does that phone relate to your job? The iPhone is a pretty amazing device, right? But it's not going to love your spouse well. It can't. It's an inanimate object, right? It's not going to love your kids well. It's not going to raise your kids, although sometimes we like to give it to them, right? Like here. <clears throat> but it's not going to raise your kids. Why? because it's an inanimate object. Your iPhone can't do your job for you at work. Maybe one day it will be able to, but it can't now. It can't even get to work, right? You have to drive the car in order, why? Because it's an inanimate object. You see, the more we worship our idols, the more our own senses begin to deaden. The more our souls begin to deaden. The more our hearts begin to deaden, and eventually we become spiritually dead. And that's exactly what the commentators suggest is happening in verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Now, all of a sudden, he's referring to, the psalmist is referring to the dead. Well, where did that come from, right? Well, did you notice who, is, who the dead is worshiping? The dead do not what? Praise the Lord, right? And if they do not praise the Lord, then who are they praising? They're praising idols. And so they've become deadened, and eventually they've become spiritually dead, right? And then 
It says, nor, nor do any who go down into silence. And commentators suggest here that silence is the land of silence. The Septuagint translate, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this as Hades. That is the land of the dead. Those who don't praise the Lord are dead, right? And they go down into the land of silence. And so if we trust idols, instead of giving praise to Yahweh, we will end up like them, dead and in the land of silence. That's the impotence of idols. But secondly, this morning, let's look together at the omnipotence of God. And we see this in verses 2 and 3 and verses 12 through 16. So in contrast to impotent, lifeless idols who can't walk with their feet, uh, they can't feel with their hands, look at verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And this is where we should cue Shylin. If I had musical ability, I might rap a little bit for you. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. If you're not familiar with the song, listen to it this afternoon. It will stick in your brain. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is a confession of God's complete and utter sovereignty. He transcends all that exists, and he does whatever he wants to. In 1 Timothy 6, 15, it says, Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is utterly independent. He's completely all-sufficient, and he is totally free. He does whatever he wants to. He does all that he pleases. Do you see the contrast here? The idols are completely helpless. They're impotent. But God does whatever he pleases. Right? Man made the idols in the image of man. But God made man in the image of God. Idols are made out of silver and gold, but God made silver and gold and everything in them. Idols have mouths, but do not speak. But God spoke all things into being out of nothing by the word of his power. Idols have eyes, but cannot see. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. He sees everything. Idols have ears but do not hear. God hears all of the prayers of all of his saints all of the time. Idols have noses but do not smell. To God, our, his people are the aroma of Christ. Idols have hands but do not feel. God, by his mighty hand, delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and delivers us out of bondage. Idols have feet but cannot walk, and the earth is God's footstool, right? Idols have throats but cannot talk, but the voice of the one true living God is like the sound of rolling thunder and the sound of many waters. Do you see the difference? Could the difference be any clearer? Impotent idols can do nothing. 
But the one true living God can do whatever he pleases. So what is he pleased to do? Well, the psalmist goes on to tell us exactly what God is pleased to do in verses 12 through 16. And I just want to focus on two things here. Look at verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He's remembered us. And he will bless us. He's remembered us and he will bless us. So what does it mean that God will remember us? I'm getting a little bit older. I'll confess it. Sometimes it's harder to pull that image, that memory, that whatever it is, that name. I'm really bad with names. Be patient with me uh, here. Sometimes it's hard to pull that. Why? Because I forget. And so I have to remember. Is that, what, is that what's going on here? Is God, you know, he's the ancient of days. Maybe he's kind of getting to the point that he can't remember anymore. No. This is covenantal language. This is God remembering, reminding himself of his covenant and choosing to act. He sees his covenant love for us and his covenant bond with us. And as a result, he decides to act. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament, right? In Genesis 8-1, God remembers Noah. And what happens? The waters roll back from the flood. And in Genesis 30, 22, God remembers Rachel and he opens her womb. And in Exodus 2, 24, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he sees his people in distress and he sends Moses to be their deliverer. God remembers and then he acts. And what does he do in our passage when he remembers what is his action? He will bless us. He will bless us. And notice he's blessing here three different groups. He's blessing three different groups in verses 12 and 13. He blesses the house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. So he's blessing Israel, that's God's covenant people. He's blessing the house of Aaron, that's God's priests. And then he's blessing all those who fear the Lord. And when he says all those who fear the Lord, there are two ways this can be interpreted. Either those are the non-Israelites, right, who come into the covenant because they fear God. In the New Testament, these are called God-fearers. Or it's everyone together because both Israelites and non-Israelites are fearing the Lord. And you see that at the end there, it says both small and great, right? So it seems to be inclusive. But either way, you have a picture of diversity here as a psalmist is talking to the people. He's saying those who are a part, who are in Israel, those who are God's priests, and those who are out of Israel, who are now all part of one body together right? He's blessing this diverse group of people that he's called as one congregation together. And did you notice in our passage how many times the word bless was used? The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. Verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord. Five times. And this repetition shows the relentless persistence 
of God's blessing. Our God reigns on high. He dwells in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. And what is he pleased to do? He's pleased to remember us. And he's pleased to bless us. That's the omnipotence of God. But then we have trust and praise. Trust and praise. Verses 1, 9 through 11, and 18. So we all have our favorite Batman, right? Maybe it's Michael Keaton. Uh, Maybe you prefer Christian Bale. Maybe you really like the George Clooney section. Or or maybe you like Ben Affleck with DC Comics. Or maybe you prefer like Lego Batman. Or, Or you go back to, you know, the Hall of Justice days. Or maybe you go back all the way to the 1960s when Adam West played Batman. And if you haven't seen Adam West as Batman, go look it up on YouTube this afternoon. It's great. Because what happens in the fight scenes when Adam West is playing Batman is he punches somebody and it's, and then the word shows up like bam, right? And then there's another and it's kapow and crunch. And it's amazing the stuff that they come up with there. So we all have our favorite Batman. Well, In the 1989 version uh, of Batman, where Michael Keaton plays Batman, do you remember who's Joker? It's Jack Nicholson, right? Jack Nicholson's an incredible actor and really creepy in the role of Joker with that smile that he's got pasted on. And at one point uh, in the movie, Joker, Jack Nicholson, I always want to call Jack Nicholas, but that's the golfer, right? Uh, Jack, Jack Nicholson is leading a parade, not Jack Nicholas, is leading a parade through Gotham, right? And, and it's, it's this huge parade. He's on this float, and as he's on this float, there's music playing, and there are these huge balloons, right, that are floating around, and he's throwing out money. And as he's throwing out free money, um, he, he says to the people as, as Gotham's beginning to gather around him, he says, who do you trust? You know, hubba, hubba, hubba. Who, who do you trust? Do, do you trust me? I, I'm giving you free money, right? Or do you trust Batman? I, I don't see Batman. Is Batman around, right? And then, of course, he releases the gas on the people, and it's really bad. Well, that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. Uh, okay, he's not releasing gas. The psalmist is saying, who, who do you trust? Who, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the gods that you can see? Or are you going to trust the God that you can't see? Who are you going to give your allegiance to? Who are you going to look to for meaning, identity, value, and worth? Who are you going to praise? And in verse 1, the psalmist says, we should give glory to God's name because of his character. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then in verses 9 through 11, the psalmist calls three groups to trust the Lord. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. And if those sound vaguely familiar to you, that's good because they were mentioned just previously as exactly the group that God blesses in verses 12 and 13. And each time he calls the group to trust, the refrain is repeated. Did you hear it? Do you remember it? He is their help and their shield. And commentators have suggested that this is each group's response 
right? The, the psalmist calls to one group and their response is, he is our help and our shield. So house of Israel or God's people trust in the Lord and they respond, he is our help and our shield. God's priests trust in the Lord and they call out, he is our help and our shield. Everyone together, those who fear the Lord, he is our help and our shield. And that's a confession of trust. It's saying, I'm hiding behind the Lord. I'm resting in God. He is my help and my shield. Can we say that this morning? He is our help and our shield. What, what does it mean that God is our help? Well, it's not that, you know, God's mommy's little helper, right? Or, or the co-pilot or, you know, I've got 99% of the way there and I just need a little bit of help to get me all the way home. That's not the kind of help that God is here. God is our all-sufficient help. He supplies all of our needs. He's a help that blesses us relentlessly. He's a help that makes life possible. And that idea of helper gets carried over into the New Testament. Do you remember Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in John 14? He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to send you another helper. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the Holy Spirit, right? The one who works in our hearts to turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And did you notice there that Jesus said another helper? Because Jesus is also our helper. He's not mommy's little helper. He's our all-sufficient king who helps us in every possible way. And then there's shield. What does it mean that God is our shield? <clears throat> Well, to understand that, you're going to need to go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, because that's the first time in the Old Testament that the word shield is used. And do you remember the context in Genesis 12? God gave Abram a promise, and Abram's wrestling with the promise, and he's doubting the promise. He's struggling with the promise. And so God says, okay, in order for you to know that I'm going to make good, for me to ensure the promise, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so what, is, what does God do? Well, God tells Abram to gather a bunch of animals because they're going to perform this ritual that was a common way, a covenant of, of making a bond between two parties uh, in, in these days. And so Abram gathered a bunch of animals and then God had him cut those animals in half and he had them lay, lay those animals on either side of the walkway. So and the smaller animals are up here and the animals get bigger as you go back. And then, then typically what would happen in an Old Testament treaty like this is the two parties would walk through the pieces together and they'd be saying, may the same thing happen to me that's happened to these animals if I break the covenant. But do you remember what happens? Abram falls asleep over there in the corner, right? And so only God walks through the pieces. What does it mean that God is a shield to us? Well, did God ever break the covenant? No. Did Abram break the covenant? Again and again and again. There were moral failures. 
There were failures of faith, failures to believe. But who took the death blow? When the covenant was broken and death was required because of the oath of malefaction that was taken, who takes the death blow? Is it Abram? No, it's Christ. You see, God is our shield in that he sends his son Christ to take the death blow for us. In World War II, William Caddy enlisted as a private first class uh, to go over to Iwo Jima. He enlisted with a bunch of his buddies. And about 12 days into the battle over at Iwo Jima, they're trapped in a foxhole. And there are Japanese snipers who are shooting over them. And then all of a sudden it happened. The grenade was rolled into the foxhole. And William Caddy looked at his two friends in that split moment, and he jumped on the grenade. And he gave his life so that his friends could live. He was a shield for his friends. Jesus is our shield. He takes the death blow that we deserve. Do you remember, I said that Psalm 115 would have been sung at the Passover. Do you remember the most important Passover in the history of the world? Jesus is there with his disciples and he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then later, after the meal, he he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is given for you. Now, remember, at every other Passover in human history, there was a lamb. There's no lamb mentioned in the Passover story. Why? Because the one giving the bread and giving the wine was the one who is going to be sacrificed. And do you remember afterwards, it says they went out and they did what? They sung a hymn, Matthew 26, 30. You know what hymn they probably sung? Psalm 115. Now think about this psalm in that moment. God does whatever he pleases. He's pleased to send his son. God will bless us. And so his son becomes a curse. God will remember us. And so he forgets his son. He is our help and our shield. Can you picture it? Can you hear them singing? Can you feel the weight of that moment, Jesus sings this hymn and then he goes to the cross so that he can be your shield. He is our help and our shield. So brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, who are you going to trust? May we say with the psalmist at the very end of this psalm, But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. 
Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is our shield. That as we take refuge behind him, he takes a death blow that we deserve. And Father, as we were reminded of that in the gospel, we pray that you would encourage our hearts more and more to trust in you. That when we're faced with the choice of who we're going to trust, that we would look to you as the one true living God who can do whatever he pleases, but was pleased to bless us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, who was our shield. Amen.